Now, this Canadian settlement didn't come easily. A coalition of First Nations first brought this issue to the attention of the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal in 2007, and a number of lawsuits ensued. Welcome to the Safe Passage for Children of Minnesota podcast. Safe Passage for Children's mission is to ensure that Minnesota has a child welfare system in which children are safe and can reach their full potential. This series of episodes will take a closer look at our short weekly policy blog, or eBrief. If you know someone who cares about children, be sure to share this podcast with them. Stick around for this week's eBrief podcast episode, featuring Safe Passage for Children's Executive Director, Rich German. Our first blog, or e-brief as we call it, for 2022 is entitled Canada and its First Nations Reach $31.5 Billion Child Welfare Settlement. This week... Canadian First Nations, or Indigenous tribes, uh, as we call them, and the federal government reached a $31.5 billion in Canadian dollar settlement, $40 billion U.S., to both fund child welfare reforms and compensate children and their families for harms inflicted by the system. Half of this agreement will fund reparations to the 115,000 estimated children who were removed from their homes since 1991, and half of the dollars will repair Indigenous child welfare programs. The agreement emphasizes equally funding First Nation child welfare on a par with white programs and preventing removal of Indigenous children from their families. The United States is unlikely to emulate this Canadian leadership. The fact that we remain the only country not to ratify the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child symbolizes our relative callousness towards children. But we may learn something from our neighbors about how to better balance child safety with improved family preservation practices. So here's my comments on this blog or e-brief. This historic Canadian settlement, first of all, would be the equivalent of the United States agreeing to a $350 billion, $350 billion investment in tribal child welfare, which would have an enormous impact, not only on the tribal child welfare programs and the Indian Child Welfare Act, or ICWA as it's known, but likely on poverty itself in Native communities. Now, this Canadian settlement didn't come easily. A coalition of First Nations first brought this issue to the attention of the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal in 2007, and a number of lawsuits ensued. And as would happen in the United States, the the Canadian government engaged in extended foot dragging. They raised a lot of technical objections to the ensuing lawsuit that were rejected. But finally, they started to work seriously on a solution in about 2015. And in the the end, they got a pretty significant result. So there's a lot to talk about in this agreement. First, 
Just in reading the press release and the New York Times story, it's interesting to start to note differences in the language that Canadians use compared to us here in the United States. As one example, they use the term repair the child welfare system, which suggests that it has been broken. And that's in contrast to our usual term of child welfare reform, which sounds more like some form of progress. I think the term repair is better overall, and it certainly fits better than the word reform with the concept of reparations to compensate for past deliberate injuries. So keeping language in mind generally as we proceed, what are some of the lessons to be learned from this child welfare experiment here in the United States? Well, to a great degree, there's much that is still unknown. The Canadian government's press release and the big, the big New York Times story on this, which there's a link to in the blog, are short on some important and interesting questions about this settlement. That's partly because this is just an umbrella agreement with a lot of details yet to be worked out. But the information they do share gives us an idea of what to watch for as the process moves forward. On the one hand, the agreement mentions funding First Nation programs on a par with the rest of the system, which in practical terms means on a par with white programs since indigenous and white families make up most of the Canadian population. In that regard, by the way, this mirrors statistics in the United States related to the overrepresentation of indigenous and black children and families in our child welfare system. In Canada, Indigenous children make up just 8% of the population, but 52% of children in foster care, which is very similar to the proportion of black families in child protection in urban areas such as Hennepin County in Minnesota. And Native American children comprise about 1% of Minnesota's population, but estimates are that as high as 10 to 14% of children in child protection and foster care. So some major similarities there between the U.S. and Canada. But back to funding First Nation programs on a par with whites. Again, interesting language. This suggests a goal of strengthening the traditional system, which could be really good, depending on how well it's managed. And in fact, that's really important to us because, as many of you know, one of the main focuses of our work at Safe Passage is to promote simply good management of child protection and child foster care programs. By that, we mean to make sure that we run programs with good training, with respect for what science and research tell us about child welfare programs, uh, good supervision, consistent measurement of results, and generally an active interest in and use of the body of knowledge that relates to management, including organizational development, business process redesign, continuous quality improvement, and so forth. So if that's what the Canadians mean when they talk about strengthening child welfare programs, great. We will watch with much interest to see how they proceed. Reparations are another welcome part of this settlement. Again, it's not language we are comfortable with in the United States or use very often, but it's important to name this piece of the puzzle because even though reparations aren't sufficient by themselves, they can't undo the harm that's been done for so long. But they are an essential step, an essential part of healing and reconciliation between whites and colonized people, and also in our country, including descendants of enslaved persons. And 
While many elements of this agreement are going to take a long time to figure out and implement, one piece of reparations that will begin as early as this spring is that when children who are aging out of foster care uh, begin receiving payments. And while many elements of this agreement will take a long time to implement, one piece of reparations that will begin as early as this spring is that children who are aging out of foster care will start receiving payments soon by then. So this is the kind of a concrete benefit that gives people heart that something real and significant is actually going to happen. Well, it seems unlikely in the United States that we can get unstuck in relations between whites and people of color, BIPOC people, without some kind of related, uh, similar truth and reconciliation process. However, as mentioned in the blog, we are probably a long way from recognizing and acting on this, particularly as it relates to poor children and families who have been impacted by child welfare. This is because, frankly, most states and a large part of the federal government are controlled by conservatives who have a long, long track record of indifference or hostility towards poor children generally and poor children of color in particular, something they wouldn't agree to, but let the record speak for itself. This is an important reason why we don't have and aren't even talking about setting up a counterpart to the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal a tribunal which actually has some significant legal powers and leverage to make the federal government deal with the issues that are raised there, in this case by indigenous groups. Another indicator of our sad national attitude and priority towards children is, as we mentioned in the blog again, the United States is the only country in the entire world out of 196 nations that has not ratified the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child. And as additional evidence, we would note that just this week, the Child Care Credit, which temporarily lifted millions of children out of poverty, expired because of the opposition of Republicans in Congress. All of these are important reminders of why we lag behind our neighbors to the North in addressing issues of justice. While agreements about repairing the child welfare system and reparations are encouraging to us, we wait with some trepidation to learn more about how the Canadian government and First Nations will implement their pledge to reduce the number of children removed from Indigenous families. The spokesperson for the First Nations Alliance, Cindy Woodhouse, who is the Manitoba Regional Chief at the Assembly of First Nations, and that is the largest Indigenous organization in Canada, said that the issue behind removing children from their families is poverty, not parenting. Poverty, not parenting. I'm always wary of presenting this issue in either-or terms. The two are just too intertwined. There's solid, consistent research over a long period of time that shows poverty is a major driver of child abuse and neglect across all demographic groups, white as well as BIPOC communities. So, if Canadians intend to tackle this issue by increasing direct income supports to Indigenous families in the child welfare system, well, that's welcome, very welcome. And they probably will get some pretty dramatic positive results, as well as set an example for us and others. But if the idea is, as in the United States, that child welfare programs will try to engage Indigenous parents in the system voluntarily, 
You know, well, we've often noted that this simply doesn't work. We know this because research on alternative response programs nationally, known in Minnesota as family assessment, has piled up since about 2006, showing repeatedly in over 70 studies and evaluations that the uptake of services in these semi-voluntary or voluntary programs has been, in the words of one author, quite low. I mean, this stands to reason, right? If you ask anyone whether they want to get some help from child protection services, you know, you want some help from CPS, of course, they will say no. Who wants child protection in their lives? Pretty much nobody. So the uncomfortable truth is that there needs to be some element of coercion in child protection services, just as in any other situation where one human being is harming another. If you try to work around this fundamental truth, you will not be able to protect children, which, as we know, is the mission of child protection. Try to think about this in any other context, any context. For example, if you ask someone who is sexually harassing people in a workplace whether they would like to voluntarily stop what they're doing and get counseling, they will probably say no and continue their behavior unabated. Or if you just ask someone who robbed the corner convenience store whether they would like services from law enforcement, they will also say no. So in this country, we simply need to face the obvious, obvious reality that if we are serious about protecting children, we need to be able to say to parents and partners, hey, if you work with us, we will do everything we can to support you, but you have to work with us. So in sum, it's already apparent that there is a lot of good in this landmark Canadian settlement, and we will watch closely and with great interest to see in detail what they mean by their commitment to repair their Indigenous child welfare programs. Well, with that, I want to thank you, Rich, for sharing your time and your expertise on these issues. Again, if you know someone who cares about children, be sure to share this podcast with them. Until next time, this is Safe Passage for Children of Minnesota, working to ensure that Minnesota has a child welfare system in which children are safe and can reach their full potential. If you would like to learn more about Safe Passage for Children of Minnesota, please visit us on our website at safepassageforchildren.org. There you can sign up for our email list, read all of our eBrief blog posts, register for our free bi-monthly webinars, watch our featured videos, and more. You can also follow Safe Passage for Children of Minnesota on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, and LinkedIn.